Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw, and that would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe, and what a guest. He is a judo national champion, former intercontinental champion, and former Miss WrestleMania. One of the greatest characters WWE ever created, one of the best guys, Santino Morella. Santino, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. That's an incredible introduction. Thank you. Hope I live up to it now. It wasn't Santino uh, Morella that was women's champion. That was Santina, John. Come that on, that's his twin sister. You know, yeah. you know, you had you got to get when you wouldn't have these guests on. Don't embarrass us by not having all the info. That was Santina Morella, uh, uh, Morelli, and he uh, his uh, Santino's twin sister. Correct? Yeah, I was born three minutes before her. Three minutes. Yeah. That's <laughs> your younger sister. She's younger. Yeah, she's she was always a big fan of mine. She looked up to me a lot copied a lot of the things I did, like my tattoos and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> was she a big Andrew, judo person too? She's yeah. She was better than me. She used to beat the boys. <laughs> Tremendous. See, I, I blame it on CTE, Mr. Briscoe. That's what I blame it on. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know you got a lot of when you were over visiting the troops over there. <laughs> were you That's ever right. part of any of those uh, tours, Santino? That, uh, I did all the ones that were in the United States. I always wanted to go to, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, but even the ones in the United States were am- amazing, you know, going to naval bases and uh, Fort Hood and getting on, you know, uh, Blackhawks and all that stuff. Like, I mean, yeah, that stuff was amazing to see that, that industrial military equipment up close. Man, that stuff was awesome. Yeah. And you realize how much these, these young guys, and they're very young, you know, 18 to 25 years old, you know, very young people, how much they are in charge of. I mean, it is a yeah. massive responsibility. They're in charge sometimes of tens of millions of dollars worth of uh, equipment. That's a pretty big responsibility. Yeah, it was great. There was one time when there was a, a bond, there was a, a jump. So uh, armies or members from other countries were coming to the United States to get a few jumps in. Once you have to hit, I think five, you get like a, you know, a special certification. And uh, anyway, so we're, we're meeting everybody and you guys are the real heroes. And then there was another room where I said, can we go in there and say hi? And, and, and this room wasn't, they were like stone faced. And they go, no, don't, don't go in that room. And I said, well, what's going on in that room? And they go, they're, they're getting deployed soon. So they're like in action mode. They, they were, yeah, there was a whole different vibe in that room. 
And uh, yeah, give me goosebumps now because you can see these guys are ready for do some damage. I was in Afghanistan one time, you know, with WWE, and uh, one of the sergeant majors asked me, said, come over, see, you want to meet some guys who don't exist. You know, it's the Delta guys, you know, the, the guys. Yeah. And they said, no pictures and, you know, don't remember any, you know, names or anything. They didn't name tags on anyway. And so I went over there and talked to them, and you could tell they were the same thing. They were focused on something. And I just found out that one of their mates had been killed uh, within the last day. And oh, so I, I jokingly said, I said, I guess somebody could be dead the next uh, couple of days. And the guy looked at me without blinking. He goes, next couple hours, sir. Oh my <laughs> and I said, gosh. holy cow. Yeah. These guys were literally going out to, they're going to be in battle in minutes. It was. Yeah. What do you say to that? You want yeah, to run <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, man. I, you know, it's nothing comparable to that, but, uh, you know, just along when, when I was in the national guard, I did my, did my basic training up in Fort Leonard with Missouri. You know, I was in an NG, my, my service number started with NG where the others were like, uh, USA and the, all the ones when on graduation day, when they announced you, they had announced you graduated from basic training and your next port of assignment was, and all the national government, that was the only day I ever felt like heat. I had a tremendous amount of heat because when they said that MG, you could feel all those active guys eyes just go right to you. Cause you were going home next assignment, Stillwater, you know, headquarters, Thunderbird, uh, three, uh, three, 45th infantry or something like that. Wow. Stillwater, Oklahoma, now with APO, San Francisco, or, or or one of those other places where their immediate deployment to Vietnam, you know, and wow. Vietnam was at its height at that time in 1969. Wow. So it was it was sad. I could feel that, that those same those same arrows, John, uh, you know, piercing my body as you had. <laughs> right. I'm I'm glad you said Vietnam because I was going to ask you if that was for George Washington. <laughs> Uh, that was that was just shortly after that. Uh, that, was, uh, that actually, it was for Little Bighorn when we beat the hell out of that white man uh, with all, all those Indians circling him. <laughs> that, you know what Custer said, did you? Where did all these natives come from? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't say it exactly like that. <laughs> I don't think he said that at all. <laughs> <laughs> he added a few Texas words on there. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a Texan. George wasn't? Custer was not a Texan. Uh, I thought we were brought up raised that he was a Texan. That's the reason he went down so easy. Santino, <laughs> <laughs> so, you just got to get used to this. You know, when you work with a Texan, you got to get in when you can there. But, <laughs> and well, what a pleasure to have you there. You know, John, John touched on a little bit before, you know, you were a national champion in martial arts. Tell us a little bit about that upbringing and then what brought you to this strange, wonderful field of professional wrestling. Well, yeah. So two, two things when I was a kid, I really liked one, one was like Kung Fu movies and Bruce Lee. And of course, you know, professional wrestling was, was, you know, in, in the early eighties, I was a young kid and my older brother was into it. So he's like, you know, you got to watch this, this stuff. And, you know, Hulk Hogan and the Iron Sheik and uh, uh, Bob Backlund was, you know, at that time was a champion and everything. So my, my, my brother did an amazing job as, as the secondary commentator, just hyping it up and telling me the stories that were taking place because he's older than me. So I loved it. And, but it was a, it's a fantasy world. It's, it's somewhere else, right? It's, it's on television. You don't even think about even really, really doing it. But one thing I could do is was I, was, I begged my mom to put me in uh, martial arts. And, you know, fate, 
as it often is, she just looked up the, the, the Parks and Recreations book to what programs were available. And um, one that fit her schedule was judo. You know, I kind of wanted kung fu or karate because that's what was popular in the 80s. And uh, so I went to judo. I was nine years old. And that was really it. You know, I was, uh, it, it was a satellite program. I was invited to the main club. And then we get into competitions. So I'm competing from the age of like 10, 11 years old, you know, provincial championships, uh, 12, 13, started going to national championships, 14, 15, and right through university. That, that was really my identity. I was the judo guy. And because judo is a grappling sport and there's throws so uh, in university. So by the time I went to grade nine, I was already uh, a provincial champion in judo for my age and weight. So now I'm getting, you know, novice wrestler kids. I wrestled in high school and I'm just throwing them left and right. It's just adapting my judo basically for, for wrestling. And it, it got me far enough that I won the regional championships for, for wrestling and and I wrestled in university for Concordia. Um, but judo was number one. It was my bread and butter. And on my wrestling team in Concordia was a friend of mine. His dad was Don Koloff in, in the 80s. He wrestled in, in, in uh, he was a Bulgarian uh, national champion, actually, in freestyle wrestling. Like world, world-class level. Big guy, too. He was probably uh, 90, 95 kilos. So when you're 95 kilos on the world circuit, you're probably 100 and 10 kilos and and um he wrestled in Canada and he had a school in like Woodbridge Ontario and I'm like oh my god I just found my destiny my calling because I'm like because it's it's like you know you hear stories I didn't know there were schools I thought you had to be invited or you know it, it was a mystery to me at the time and then once I found out that um coach we call him coach yeah I had a I had a school I, I kind of I kind of knew that this, this was going to happen. I just had to finish, finish university and, and get everything organized and in order to, to, to now sink my teeth into this. So I started wrestling pretty late. I finished uh, my undergraduate degree. I finished teacher's college. And then uh, just as I was about to start, the unit that they rented, the, the owner sold it. So they had to find a new unit. And that took a couple extra years. So I started really my training at 28 years old. Um, I had a match in 1999. It was a, a battle royal, but uh, I wasn't I wasn't trained. So technically, it was my first match. But my first singles match was uh, 2003. So 2003, I'm uh, I'm 29 years old. My first match, and I kind of realized after six matches, this you know no one's really seeing this. Uh, it's you know the tree falls in the woods type thing. So the only connection we had was in Japan. So I packed up. And I uh, sat my daughter down and had a long conversation and said, yeah, I got to go do this. And this is for us. And uh, I went to Japan for a year. And being a, a former national judo champion kind of gave me a little bit of a head start in Japan, a, a little bit of a boost. Because they could bill me as a judo is huge in Japan. Uh, did, you, did you go uh, through the dojo? Was you invited to the dojo? Yeah. So I, I went to Battle Arts, the original Battle Arts in Japan. And I, I paid. I got paid as a member. I kind of had to fight my way through the dojo and, and uh, until I can beat everybody uh, in grappling. And then I was invited to a, a match. And it was, it was a work shoot match. So it wasn't really, you know, WWE style. It was like an MMA fight. And I thought they didn't give the guy the Iggy because this guy was 
<laughs> trying to choke me out, arm lock me. And I'm like, man, it was like 95%. This guy was going 95%. And uh, luckily I could, you know, I could ho- hold my own a little bit. And uh, uh, cause I'm supposed to go over. Right? <laughs> Maybe they didn't tell this guy. And uh, I don't know if they were testing me or what, but, uh, and then, yeah, I started getting some momentum um, in Japan and it was going really, it was going really well. And then I overstayed one of my three month tourist visas because I was trying to get a, a working visa and I overstayed it by a week and I was banned for five years. And uh, five years. Well, the, the original at the time when, when I was notified, it was five years. But one guy in the immigration office gave me the Iggy, which they don't usually do. And he said, if you wait till December 1st, the law is going to change for the first time in 100 years. It's going to be now you're banned for one year. So whatever laws in place. By the time you leave or at the time you leave, that's what's going to apply to you. So I kept a low profile and I came home and I was banned for one year. But again, fate, that's what kind of guided me toward, towards OVW. So I came home and I had to you know, reformulate what the hell am I going to do now? Because I had an apartment. I had a scooter. I had like a fully furnished. I had, my life was there. I was doing some. Were you, in, were you in Tokyo? I was in uh, Saitama, a little town called uh, Koshigaya. So I can take like one subway ride to Tokyo and uh was that Ishikawa? Yes, yeah, Mr. Ishikawa was there. He was uh yeah, so he, that's Mr. Ishikawa who ended up coming to Canada years later and coaching at, at, at Battle Arts Academy. That, that's why I opened up Battle Arts was a tribute to there. But I loved it there. It was awesome because the MMA fighters and the pro wrestlers, they all train together. And in fact, some of the MMA guys would work in the pro wrestling shows and the pro wrestlers would go fighting like pride and stuff. So I love the, the, the crossover and that's what I kind of wanted to bring when I did that. And then, uh, so I'm banned from Japan. I go to OVW and then I meet uh, a gentleman by the name of Rip Rogers. How, how did you go? How did you uh, originally find OVW just through the net and through uh, yeah, word of mouth? A, a buddy of mine told me about it and said that, uh, you know, it, I knew there was something with the developmental. I didn't know exactly what it was. And I remember I called uh, Julie, Danny Davis's wife, and I'm like, can I audition <laughs> for your company? And they're like, that doesn't really work like that. It's kind of, it's a school. So I had to go down and start in the beginner's class. And I knew if I made it to the advanced class, that's where the developmental talent is. So I could be around that group and get some eyes on me. Because the whole thing is I got to get eyes on me. So I went to the beginner's class for a month the intermediate class with Rip Rogers uh, for the majority of my time there. And then I graduated to the advanced class. So in that time, let's say there was 30 guys in the advanced class, probably 26 were, were contracted talent. And there was a few of us that weren't. So I was in the right place. And, Did you uh, have to pay to go to OBW initially? Yeah, yeah, I paid. Yeah, I paid uh, um, for the beginners, intermediate and advanced. Yeah. Yeah. So some of these guys, some some of these guys were on contract that you were in the advanced class with, uh, getting paid, and you were paying in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. After, right. after spending a year in Japan wrestling in the Ishikawa's dojo. Yeah, which which is incredible the way it works, because the stuff I learned in Japan was what what was what was making me stand out. Everyone's doing you know lock up headlock tackle, and I'm doing leg kicks, judo throws, and they're like, whoa, whoa, what's, what's this guy doing? And it really made me stand out. And once I was able to take that moveset and mesh it with, you know, the proper storyline formula type thing, now I can work with other people, but I still, I'm still standing out. And, um, and so 
So, so uh, 29 years old, my first match. 30 years old, I'm in Japan. 31, I moved to OBW. 32, I get signed. And 33, I debut on Raw. So I was, wow. I was training like, because I was away from my daughter and it was really hard for me. So um, even just saying it, it's like, it still chokes me up. So I would train like crazy, like two or three times a day. You know, private classes with Rip. I trained with Al Snow. I would go to the gym and go nuts. And I just, I wasn't wasting a second. And when I, you first I, went there, Jim Cornette was uh, the run in the school. Then then there was a change, right, to uh, Paul Heyman, right? Yeah, so that, well, <laughs> that was kind of indirectly because of me. So <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I'll let you bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my daughter, I was there for a month. And uh, it was summertime, so my daughter came to visit. And I just got graduated to the intermediate class. So the intermediate class would go to the TV tapings and they would kind of fill in the audience and, and you know, motivate the audience to cheer and boo at the right time. And um, so it was my first day. You know, they're like, welcome to the class. Tomorrow's TV. You want to come? We're allowed to come and, you know, watch TV. So I go, sure. You know, I show up with my daughter and they go, yeah, our class kind of sits over there. So I'm sitting there with my daughter. She's in front of me. And the boogeyman comes out and he kind of looks towards my daughter and she's like, because ah! she's like, how she's 10? I think she's 10. So I got I got this big smirk on my face, like, oh my I was the same way when Boogeyman did that to me at the Royal Rumble, and I was 40. <laughs> I was throwing up and I was 60. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so your daughter's in, I think, good company. So she she's terrified, and I'm just getting the kick out of it because she's like totally into it. She's mesmerized, she's freaking out. So I got this big smirk on my face sitting behind her like, this is awesome. She's going to remember this forever. And the smirk on my face made him snap. He thought I was no selling. And I was trying to explain to him, like, this is my first day, man. I'm just in the audience with my family. Like, I, 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 really, it's my first time here. And uh, he called me backstage and they slapped me and stuff. And then, you know, it, it got out. And um, yeah, it was a bit, I mean, my friends are calling me back home, dude. You're all over the internet, and there's this thing, and and the, but they were still calling me Johnny Giobasco because that that was my wrestling name in Japan. So it's like Jim Cornette slaps Johnny Giobasco. <laughs> and, and to uh, you, that's the last thing you want to be be known for starting in the business. Oh man! I mean, any yeah. incident, not not just Cornette or anybody, but you just don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want that as part of your resume. Yeah, I mean, because you hear about. I mean, you know, you hear about heat, right? And like, what is this crazy? I don't even know what heat really even is at that time, but I think I got some, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you felt and, it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then John, Johnny Ace came down and, you know, I think they wanted to kind of sense if I was one of those guys that was going to sue or not. And, you know, I had no intention of suing. I just, I'm like, it didn't really even affect me, to be honest. But he was honest. He said, you're not getting a free job out of this, but, you know, when, when the time comes, we'll we'll give you a fair shake and we'll observe you and, so, so your smirk was more at your daughter. It wasn't that directed at the boogeyman. You were just enjoying the, the, the moment that your daughter was getting a lifelong memory of this strange man yeah. with a bunch of worms coming out of his face. Yeah, yeah. And you can, I mean, it's actually on tape somewhere. If you watch it, you can see me back there. And I, I go to grab her to kind of like for a second. Then I go, no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let her get scared. And then you, you can see it pretty clearly. Um, and that was it. And then I got hired like, the next year, right? So it really didn't even, 
come into play. In fact, well, I know, I know when Paul Heyman come down there, uh, Heyman couldn't wait to tell me, he said, Briscoe, we got this guy down there. And he was telling me all about your amateur background, you know, your, your, your martial arts background. I'm great, man. I can't wait to see him. And then, then one day I'm, I'm flying to Milan, Italy, and we're in Atlanta, and here comes this guy with a big, huge smile. John, he had the biggest smile on his face again, just got the break of a lifetime. So this guy was smiling from ear to ear and happy going down the hall. And man, oh, man, uh, he introduced himself. He said, I've just got signed. I introduced myself. I'm going to Milan with you. You know, and we sat there, stood there and BSed for a little bit. And but you could tell with with his personality, you know, and and just talking with you, you had the right attitude. You you're ready for the big time at that moment. And boy, was you surprised when the big time came to you like that? Oh man, you know, I tell people, imagine you're pitching in AAA and you're dreaming of the big leagues, and all of a sudden they go, "Congratulations, son! You're getting called up, and you're starting for the Yankees on Monday." And you're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Because I was driving to a live event in uh, Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And um, I get a phone call, 203, and it's, uh, it's Mike Bucci. And he, they, they're calling me Boris because I was playing the Russian character Boris. He goes, hey, Boris, it's, uh, it's Nova. Can you speak Italian? Because your background's Italian, right? So a month before, uh, Dusty Rhodes, so he called this one guy Fearless Jack Bull. He was a, a character in developmental. And, and Jack Bull thought somebody was ribbing him doing a Dusty impression. So, he said, can you ride a motorcycle? He goes, nope. He goes, can you learn to ride a motorcycle? He goes, nope. And then uh, he goes, well, okay, I guess, I guess goodbye. And then he looks and it's 203. And he goes, oh my God, that was Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> so Dusty came to OBW. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's all in the boys, man. <laughs> so what happened to him? You get fired? No, no. I mean, no, he never got he, an opportunity to get to get called up, never came around again for him. But he was apparently going to ride with The Undertaker on when he was like the American badass. That was like, <laughs> so, uh, so, so instead of riding with The Undertaker, he just kind of slipped off into anonymity because of that conversation. Yeah. And, and so so Dusty Rhodes came to OBW and, you know, said, where is he? And they had a chuckle over it. And he goes, listen, if they ever ask you if you can do something, the answer is yes. And then you better learn how to do it before you got to do it. He goes, if they, you know, if you, if you have to ride a, a unicycle, you better say yes and you better figure it out. So when Nova calls me, he goes, uh, can you speak Italian? He goes, you're on speakerphone. I'm here with some writers. Can you speak Italian? I goes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he goes, how much oh, Italian could you speak? My God. When I used to work downtown Toronto, I was in rush hour traffic for a year and I had a cassette, tourist Italian. And I used to let it just loop in traffic, hoping some would sink in. And uh, some sunk in. So, but it was all stuff like, uh, so when they say, can you speak Italian? I was like, yeah, sure. He goes, okay, say something. We're all listening. And I go, vorrei un mezzo chilo di formaggio, which means I want a half kilo of cheese. (laughs) (laughs) And then then, uh, I said something like, where's the hotel? And, you know, some really basic stuff. And then I can, I can, and nobody knew what the hell you were saying anyways. No one knew. And they're looking around going, I don't know. That sounds kind of like a sounds good. Okay, you're gonna fly out tomorrow. And uh I flew so that's I, like I, hiring a one-legged man, John. That's right. That's right. How, how can you possibly hire the wrong one? You got one leg, yes, sir. Yes, you're sir. hard. You're right. And I'm a last number six five zero eight four equal housing lender. Whew. 
Christmas is finally behind us, but are you dreading those credit card bills headed your way? Well, here's a pro tip. Don't get stuck making minimum payments in the new year. Savewithconrad.com can help you get rid of your credit card debt just like that. Oh, and we're going to get you the best deal on a mortgage you've ever had. But how's this for starters? No payments until March. You don't need money out of your pocket or perfect credit. So find out how much money you can save for free right now at savewithconrad.com. Look, we're all adults here. I know some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. Lucy is a modern oral nicotine company that makes nicotine gum lozenges and pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume their nicotine. It's a new year. Why not start it out by switching to a new nicotine product that you can feel good about? My family and friends that use nicotine, this is what I will recommend is the Lucy products. If you enjoy using nicotine, you should definitely check out Lucy's products at lucy.co. That's lucy.co and use promo code JBLGB, JBLGB at checkout. Also, I have to read this disclaimer, warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Remember, if you're interested in a better way to use nicotine, visit lucy.co and be sure to use that promo code JBLGB. <laughs> so so I, uh, I go to the bookstore and I, I buy like eight CDs or, uh, of Italian, download them to my iPod, and the whole flight, I'm just espressos and trying to absorb as much Italian. Uh, I was terrified of you know, not being able to speak enough Italian, but luckily the way it, it went out, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't get exposed that night, but it was, uh, yeah. All was, you had to say was C, I believe. C, <laughs> uh, my name, or Santino Marella, and where I was from. So I said, uh, can I say my dad's town, where, where my dad's from? It's a small town of 2000, like a mountaintop village uh, a town, I guess, in, in Southern Italy called San Fili. So I said, I'm from San Fili, and apparently the phones are going off in San Vili. Like, hey, what? some guy from our town is wrestling? And who the heck is this guy? And people <laughs> put it together. Oh, it was the Corelli family. They left in the 50s and all that stuff. <laughs> and I, I've, I've since visited, actually. Um, and it was a cool opportunity for me because I'm, I'm half Italian. But my dad, I found out, became a Canadian citizen after I was born. So I was entitled to dual citizenship. So I'm now, I'm now, since I became Santino, I'm an Italian citizen. I got a passport and I, I learned the language a lot better because I knew I had to go back one day and I knew that I had to, you know, cut a promo properly. So I was getting, studying on Rosetta Stone and I even got a tutor and I went back and I cut a few promos in Italy, uh, in Italian. And uh, the Italian fans were cool. They were just really appreciative of, of the effort because they, they know I'm Canadian, right? You didn't have to look very far to find out, but uh, yeah, I was. I, well, what I, a trip! So you you go over there. You've been in AAA. Now you're calling up for the Yankees starting pitcher in the middle of a pennant race. By the way, because you're going yeah. over on a MAGA and you become a citizen of the country. I mean, that, yeah. that's pretty much a win-win. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was it was incredible. And then the whole day, like you know, so this is in the middle of a tour. So I'm in the hotel by myself. Like um, I get there uh, Sunday. And I'm just kind of walking around the line. Then everyone get, gets there Sunday night on the buses. And then we go to TV. So I, I walk on the bus and some guys, um, Sean Michael said he thought I was like a local, a local uh, 
you know, I worked for WWE Europe office, just, just a guy, you know, <laughs> just a regular guy. And then uh, I walk in and double A is, as I'm walking in, I met double A back at OVW. He's walking out of the production meeting, you know, with the script rolled up and he goes, Oh, you're having a good day, kid. You're winning the IC strap. And I'm like, I see strap. That can only mean one thing. Is this like, what, what did he just say? And then, uh, you know, somebody's called me and said, you know, Vince wants to meet you. And we talked about it and, and then it went down. And, uh, it was, how, just, how was your feelings when, when you didn't think it was a rib when somebody came and said, Vince wants to talk to you, did you? I mean, here you are coming right out of. Yeah, no, I mean, because as soon as I went down the hall and Vince turned around and gave me his undivided attention and we had a great conversation and, and uh, it was it was it was awesome, man. Then we went out there and met, you know, Michael Hayes and Umaga. kind of just talked it through, and and uh, it, it was crazy. So then they planted me in the audience. You know, they had a reserve seat, and then when Vince's music hits, like hundreds of people rushed to the barricades, and I'm like, oh geez, I didn't rush because I didn't know they were going to do that. So now I'm I'm like seven people deep, and I'm like, oh my god, he's not going to see me. Like I have to be in the front. And, um, and then they kind of filter back. And then Umaga comes out and they rush again. I go, oh my God, I missed it again. And I'm still seven or eight people back. There's no way he's going to see me waving amongst all these people. So finally, when the time came and he said, how about here? Anybody here want to fight this guy? I was like, and I made sure I was at the front and pushed my way through. So he saw me. But man, when, when they rushed the barricade, I saw my life flashing before my eyes and go, he's not going to, he's not going to find me. He's not going to, it was, Oh my God. With but, uh, red shoes on Santino, I couldn't have missed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's funny. They're here somewhere. My son was playing with them last week. Cause at the time it was kind of trendy to wear like uh, these Ferrari shoes, like kind of racing shoes. So that's, that's where I got the idea to wear the red, the red boots underneath. Cause people were wearing like formula one driving boots with jeans. And that, that's where I tried to, yeah, those were not Formula One boots. <laughs> when, to, to go back just a little bit, uh, you're, you're judo. You're a national champion. Did you ever think about going in any anywhere more international with the judo at that time? Yeah, I did. My, my, my goal was the 2000 Olympics. And uh, I had my daughter between second and third year of university. And uh, it just, it just, uh, it didn't become feasible after a while. Her, her mom and I lasted about a year. And then I almost, and she moved back to Toronto and I was living in Montreal where the national team is. And I, 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 had, I had to move back, you know, I had to get a job. I had to start paying child support. And, and, and uh, I was pretty jaded, man, because my whole life, I went to a junior world championships in Cairo. I uh, went to the international high school championships um judo was an incredible i came second in canada at various time uh, four times before i finally became a men under 21 national champion and uh i was just hitting my stride i defeated the current senior national champion at the u.s open and um i just it was like i had to fade in the rearview mirror and i had to go and i had to be a man and, uh, well, yeah. Jerry, Jerry, your brother Jack had very much the same situation, right? I mean, Jack probably would have been a gold medalist uh, in the Olympics, but he didn't have the money to to not uh, go into pro wrestling or some type of job that made him some income, right? Correct. Uh, Jack was uh, uh, 
uh, lost one 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 collegiate match during his entire college career, and uh, he was he was he was ranked right up there and and the top. And during the summertime, they'd have the different AAU tournaments back then. It was governed by the AAU, and uh, he would win those tournaments too. So he was ranked right up there. But he he had gotten married right out of high school. By that time, he'd already had two children, and uh, and uh, it wasn't it didn't like it is now with all these uh, 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 Olympic training centers around. So you more or less was on your own unless you had a, a, a very well-endowed backer or, or your family was was very wealthy. It was kind of a close, all the amateur sports was, was kind of kind of closed in where you, 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 know, you, you had to make a decision. Jack had two kids and the same as you, he knew he had to support his, his family. So he, he bypassed that and went into pro wrestling. So I, I could relate to what you're saying there. Yeah, you know, in hindsight, I, I see a way now that I could have made it happen, but uh, I, I didn't know at the time. I didn't have this, this people with experience and my dad was supportive, but he wasn't a, a high level athlete. And my sensei was just an old school Japanese, you know, warrior. And, and he, you know, there was no sports psychology. There was no um, people that you know, I didn't have a manager, that kind of thing. If someone said, Hey, this is what you got to do. I would have been great, but I was figuring it out on, on my own. But, yeah, I mean, I still love judo. I'm actually the first uh, couple of years ago. I was awarded the first ambassador to judo Canada. Uh, so I'm well, still you and Bruce Pritchard are a lot like Bruce and five five Hall of Fame there, and I'm sure you're you're, you're at least in one <laughs> Hall of Fame. Bruce is. I was you, you probably deserve yours though. <laughs> <laughs> Every time yeah. we turn around, Bruce goes in some new karate hall of fame. We think it's because Conrad gives them money. <laughs> I was uh, I was coaching right up, right up until the pandemic. I was coaching, so I just stepped away from uh, from coaching judo. Now uh, it was great to go back to tournaments and see all the old referees and guys from my generation are, are now senseis and coaches from different provinces. And it, yeah, it was it's it's still a great organ. And I was doing some commentary for the World Judo Tour, which is an amazing organization. Um, one of the guys is a wrestling fan out of Wales. He worked for the, uh, in the European office. And he saw that I'm tweeting about judo. And he's like, hey, there's a guy with a million Twitter followers, former WWE wrestler. So I came as a guest. And then I stepped on the, I went on the mic for a little bit. And I put a little pro wrestling flair. And they thought I was the greatest announcer ever because they, they have some of the former world champions that maybe, you know, they don't, have the entertainment side to it. So then I was invited back for a couple events and I even did uh, a junior world championships as, as the commentator. I did a couple grand prix. Uh, it was awesome, man. Cause they fly you out to really cool locations like Azerbaijan and Mongolia. Um, just really cool. I went to Kazakhstan places. I wouldn't have gone to, you know, when I have two weeks vacation. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Mongolia. I don't know why, but I've always wanted to go to see the steps and all that. How was Mongolia? Oh, Mongolia! I didn't go to that one, but 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 that's some of the locations that they go to. Yeah, they go to Croatia, like really cool, really cool locations. So I want, but now the pandemic, so hopefully they invite me back to do some more. Do you still roll around with the guys? I mean, how's your neck? Uh, does it allow you to still do some stuff with the guys you're training? Yeah, when I was coaching, I was just playing with the kids, and you know, I wasn't fighting any adults. Um, in fact, when you're coaching, you kind of it takes up all your time and you can't even kind of roll. But now that I've stopped coaching and now that things are opening up, I actually went to, I'm going to a local jujitsu club here in Ontario and I'm, I'm starting to get my lungs back and, uh, and grapple again. 
Um, yeah, my neck's fine. I just, you know, I don't let them get, I really get to get a hold of it anyway, but I train with an iron neck every other day and it's, it feels pretty good. I have a, it's funny, the, the amount of time you got to spend toward, towards maintenance now, you know, decompressing my back and, you know, hydration and strengthening my, I have to strengthen everything, you know, it's just not naturally strong and durable anymore. Um, but you know, if you're meticulous about that stuff, you can still play. When you were in the dojo in Japan, were you wrestling also a lot? Uh, how often were you wrestling uh, in Japan? Well, when I first, I, I think I went a few months without, without even a match. And then in the beginning, it was uh, the big shows were like once every two months. Um, and then I was starting to wrestle you know, once a month, twice a month. And then. Uh, and what, what group was that? Uh, mostly it was, it was, it was battle arts. Right. And then there was another, uh, and were most of those, because it started like right, right at the end of my run, uh, in Japan, when I first started there, went to WWE in 93, 94, that's when they started doing a lot of the work shoots, you know, became yeah. really popular. You know, first you had kind of the Onita stuff, you know, the death matches, but then the kind of the work shoot stuff started, you know, and it really blurred a line there because you weren't sure what was a work and what was a shoot. Was that kind of what you were doing with battle arts and was that kind of a popular thing at that time in Japan? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I was doing. And that that's probably still my 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 favorite style. Um it's definitely a a subgroup, but uh the people that believe it, they they're just they they believe it so much. And it's fantastic. Guys, I love yeah. I love the progression they had of it. I think it really influenced pro wrestling in the states because of the popularity of it what was the oh albright uh gary albright remember that guy he was i know uh, gary well smashing people left and right he he was <laughs> yeah that's that's a that's a good description of gary albright <laughs> smashing people left and right him and doc dr death were, were tag team partners and that was a oh my god those guys would smash things you want them on your side that's for sure Santino, uh, one of your one of your many assets is, is your comedic side of you. Were, were you always when you were a kid? Were you you? Were, did you have aspirations of being a comedian or or funny well, man? Or? It's funny because um, the national coach at the time, Sensei Nakamura, when I was in the national team, he said you're going to be a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really. I, I I was a funny guy. I mean, we're, we're all funny in my high school. We just joked around and. But, you know, I came from a, a unique situation where uh, my high school, most of my friends, like the vast majority of my friends, they're all first generation Canadians. So all the parents came from other, you know, uh, Croatia, Portugal, Greece, um, Poland, Malta, Italy. And um, so all the parents kind of kind of talk funny. You know, they, they came in their 20s. So they speak English, but they mess up some expressions and they have strong accents and my friends used to call me out for it they're like you're just you're making a living making fun of our parents on tv <laughs> my next door neighbor ivan he's croatian and that's where i get son of my gun from he's son of my gun ivan that's my next door neighbor <laughs> my best friend's dad so um a, a lot of this a lot of the content that i came up with was you know just influenced from growing up in that from neighborhood from the neighborhood yeah but uh, no, I was uh, I was always kind of a shit disturber slash class clown <laughs> and and, and uh, you know big mouth got myself in some trouble, um, and it's yeah yeah so basically yeah but the timing 
you know, I, I watched a lot of, and it's funny, my dad loves TV. And so we watched a lot of 80s sitcoms growing up. And, and a lot of the Santino characters time, if you, if you, you might notice it's kind of 80s-ish comedy. So it's just really this combination of growing up where I did, when I did, you know, 80s TV, and then you add judo to it and, you know, boil it all together. And, 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 and there's this character, Santino, that people really connected with. I think um, I'm five foot ten. I came out of the audience. I think people really felt like I could possibly be this guy, you know. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, 6'3 and jacked and all that stuff. So uh, it's funny because when I would see fans in a mall, just say, they wouldn't be like, uh, oh, my God, it's, you know, this superstar. They'd be like, hey, what's up, Santino? You know? <laughs> like, they're my buddies. Like, I've never met them before, but I'm, I'm one, of, one of them, you know, one of the people. So it was a pretty cool connection with, with the audience. You know I, thought, I, I thought you pulled that off as good as anybody ever in a business has pulled off one of those guys in the audience thing because you know your 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 Italian heritage and everything and and your accent uh, that you that you you thought of on the airplane ride over there, but you pulled it off and you know it, it was of course before the days of Twitter and Facebook and all this, so there wasn't a lot of people out there that could expose your 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 background you know like there is today within seconds you know they know your life history out, out yeah. there so you were able to pull that off but when you got home like you said you started getting calls from all your neighborhood hey what are you doing sounding like me or something like that yeah one of my favorite so for some reason that particular episode of raw was watched by everybody in mississauga and toronto that i know <laughs> for, for some reason and and people would uh so when i came back back home one of my favorite things is people coming up to me and telling me, you know, where they were that night. And guys would be like, I'm upstairs and my wife's going, hey, Tony, didn't you go to school with this guy? And he runs downstairs and he sees me there. One of my buddies was smart enough to go on the, on the internet, on the cheat sheets. And uh, I told him I might debut, no guarantee, don't tell anybody. So they, he, all the guys came over to, the, to one, one guy's house and he went online and he saw some guy Santino Morella debut. He goes, Oh, I wonder if that's him. Like, I don't, it's not Anthony's name. You know, I don't, I don't know if it's him. So when Vince gave me this, so what's your name again? And I said, Santino, he goes, Holy crap. And uh, so when we won the title, my friends break it. They, they were just jumping up and down. They wanted to go in the car, you know, up and down the streets, honking the horn. And it was, uh, it was a, definitely a hero's welcome when I, when I came home, it was, it was, it was crazy. Now you come up with Morella. Is that after uh, uh, Gorilla? I, yeah, the name was given to me, uh, but it was basically a tribute tribute to uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Joey Morella, which was like a tribute. lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah, you think? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so Santino, so, did, did you go after the won the title? Did you you stayed on the tour, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go over you halfway through a tour, and all of a sudden you're getting on the next the bus the next day and you're the champion <laughs> well, well that night that night um you know there's kind of an, an initiation type thing coming and um cena's on the bus saying uh i'll see you in the bar and uh i'm like okay and then and and people are trying to get me scared like uh oh like no no like they're gonna see you in the bar and i'm like okay i gotta <laughs> I mean, this is awesome that's john cena and he knows my name and that's cool and uh Shawn Michaels is on the bus and, and he, apparently he was coming down to the bar and it was the first time in seven years that he came down to a bar. So 
Tina's hot at me because he's never drank with Shawn Michaels, but for me, he's coming to the bar. And, and, uh, and then, uh, so I, I get to the, now mind you, I'm 33 years old. So, so you went from Shawn Michaels on the bus thinking you were a local tech guy to be an <laughs> intercontinental champion, having a beer with uh, Shawn Michaels after the event. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, it was Marty Elias is like, uh, you know, it's okay. I grew up in Toronto in the nineties. It was, it was nightclub culture. We went out every night. We drank all the time. I'm 33. I'm not 20 years old. I'm 33. So I know there's nothing that anyone's going to do to me that I haven't done to myself <laughs> worse, you know? So as soon as I got to the hotel, I ran to catering and I, there was a big thing of a, a rice steamer. So I wolfed down a bowl of rice as fast as I can. I'm preparing my stomach. I know what's coming. And then, um, Marty Elias goes to you're summoned in the bar. So I go to the bar, <clears throat> shots of Jack. I break away one more time. I knew I, I knew I needed a little more rice. So I went to catering a little more rice. And then Marty's like, no, you better get back to the bar. Like, you're getting hot. You can't leave the bar anymore. So I get to the bar again. And now it's like, okay, my, I'm saying to myself, plant your two feet and endure. Your job is to endure. You stand here. If you have to stand here for 12 hours, you're going to stand here for 12 hours. And then it was shots of Jack, shots of Jack. Ric Flair's in the bar. And, and they're like, uh, Rick would like to address you. And I'm like, oh my God, this is getting better. This is incredible. The Ric Flair comes in. He gives me the welcome to the fraternity speech. And I'm just like shaking, smiling. Like this, this is incredible. Uh, you know, everyone's there at the bar. Like everyone, the roster, the producers. It was just a night. And I'm just elated. Like alcohol is not even affecting me. I'm on such a high. I'm on cloud nine. This, I just debuted. I just... And the WWE, I'm like, <laughs> I didn't want the night to end, to be honest. You're the Intercontinental Champion, man. I'm, I'm wearing the title in the bar, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And uh, so, anyway, I'm having such a good time. I said, you know what, guys? I'd like to buy everybody a drink in the bar. And uh, so I buy a round, and, and people go, he, he's buying drinks now. What the heck? And uh, they go, oh, man, this guy doesn't get the, the point here. He's supposed to get drunk, you know? But I had that rice in my belly. And... Um, I bought another round and, and so someone else is buying a round, but I'm keep I'm buying rounds as well. And all of a sudden everybody starts peeling off. Like, oh, that's I'm out. And guys are peeling off. I'm out. I'm out. There's TV tomorrow. I'm out. And CM Punk, I remember he was leaving the bar, like, good luck. And he saw me standing there. 6:30 in the morning, he's walking in. He just his mouth drops. He's like, <laughs> still standing there. <laughs> and I think it was down to me. I think Cena was like. I, I I was the last guy in the bar. And uh, so the, the story is, you know, it kind of, uh, you know, changed a little bit that I outdrank everybody, but I paid for it. Once the alcohol permeated through that rice and got in there, I, I suffered. I suffered the next day. I, I ended up, you know, timber and I hit a plant and I was, someone brought me to my room. Next thing I remember, it's knock, knock, knock. You're, they're waiting for you on the bus. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I just, I don't even know what I put on, grabbed my bag. It was Jimmy Tillis found me, you know, butt naked with the belt on and uh, stagger on the bus. And I can hear all the snickering as I looked like, you know, death, right? I just sat down, <laughs> leaned against the window, tried to get back to my coma where, where I was. And uh, someone, I think it was Matt and Jeff Hardy, they brought me to the arena. 
found me a little spot in the back just to every half hour snooze was like I was kicking out slowly, you know? And then it was time for like a, re a rehearsal for that night. And um, I showed up and Vince was like, have you been drinking? And I was like, uh, uh. and then he started laughing and everyone laughed and I go, okay. Cause he heard, he heard the story and I, I was just, you know, I was able to, but uh, funny enough, that was the only time that night I had to do, it was ECW. I did a promo because everyone's like, who's this Santino guy that came out of the audience? Let's hear from him for the first time. And it was the only time in my career ever, 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 I forgot my lines. <laughs> and I was still hung over. But again, Dusty Rhodes, he, he gave me a trick. It was if you ever forget your lines, just become overcome with emotion. You know, just do one of these, pause, <laughs> and think of them, right? And sure enough, I forgot my lines got caught up with emotion and just remembered enough to gonna get out of there. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And then, uh, then the night ensued. And then, then from then on, it was pack your bags. You're on the road for the next like eight years straight. So Dusty Rhodes was pretty much his advice. Got you the job, kept you the job. Got you the promos. <laughs> Beautiful gems. Those are called gems. Yeah. <laughs> I believe I believe this is right. I don't want to say because I know somebody's going to repeat this on the internet, but I believe John Cena's first beer was with us uh, on the golf course where Taker and all the guys were out playing golf, and somebody handed Cena a beer. He didn't tell anybody he didn't drink. Yeah. He just did it because, you know, he was handed a beer. He drank, and, you know, months later we found out that was the first time he had had a beer, but it was out of respect that for, you know, the old guys, they handed him a beer. He just said, okay, I'll, I'll drink one, which – if he hadn't of, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have cared. But it was. Or oh, uh, did he learn quick? Boy, did he ever! That man, <laughs> yeah. that man has got a tolerance that's unbelievable. It's crazy. Cena is him, superhuman. I'm, I'm telling you. Yeah, I, I've seen him be the last guy in the bar. Like I tapped out, let's say five a.m. He's still in the bar, and I'm proud of myself. I'm going to the gym at like eleven, and he's leaving the gym. And I'm like, what? How did he? Is that the same guy? Like, yeah, no, he, in anything he does, he, he, he dives in and yeah. becomes like a master. So, you know, for example, after his first beer, within a year, he's telling you about the different types of oh my goodness. and malts he's put, and beer. He's putting us to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he knows everything about making alcohol, where, you know, the history of alcohol. And he just knows everything about it. Yeah, he's, he's funny. I always tried to get him to smoke pot. He never did, though. <laughs> You know, there's nothing worse than being on an international tour and looking around and realize the sun's coming up and you're like in the lobby or something and you're going, oh, geez, yeah. I can't believe I did this. And you're like, oh, no, this is going to be a long day. Yeah. Well, you, you leave your hotel room and, and the window shades are wide open. Then you get back to your hotel room after a night of drinking and everything. And uh, you're, you're, you're a little too lit and you forget to close those window shades. And all of a sudden that sun is just uh, peeking, peeking through those windows. You're, you're right. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. What have I done? Yeah. The, the, the best thing is when you, you look at the paper and it says the bus leaves, 6 30 ah we're good they're gonna make it because some of those late shows you know it's right down the street that way you can sleep all day yeah those are good <laughs> those are good surprises so how was the rest of the tour was the, you're you're champion now and you're part of the crew i mean this had you had to be on cloud nine at this point yeah yeah i mean it was an eventful tour i, I think uh edge got in trouble for pulling a 
uh, an extinguisher and Randy got in trouble for something else. So me being the new guy winning the title kind of got buried kind of quick over some events that took place. So, but yeah, there was a little bit of, <clears throat> you know, who the heck's this guy? This is, this is BS, you know, not a lot. And, and those that did, you know, in a couple of months, it was kind of gone. Yeah. But I was having random matches, you know, Chris Masters and Regal and just trying to, just trying to wrestle and not, you know, I, I was still really green to be honest, because I was doing that, that work shoot style um, for, for so long. And I had six matches. So I didn't, honestly, I, I'm trying to think how many matches I would have had sub less than a hundred matches. Wow. And I, and you I'm on. You said something very important there. You know, how, how the, how the guy is going to accept me? How, how are they going to look at me? Here's a guy, you know, and our, our locker room is real stiff and John can back that up. Our locker room is stiff, but we're welcoming him too. But here, here's a newcomer straight out of developmental first night in the territory on TV. He wins one of the most prestigious titles in WWE, the intercontinental championship. There, did you did you feel any animosity towards some of the guys that had been there a while? You know, why is this kid, you know, he come in and, and all of a sudden he's champion? I've been busting my butt for two years and I hadn't even got a smell yet. Did you feel any of that? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily directed at me. It was kind of directed at the situation because everybody knows that if someone's given the opportunity, they're going to take it. But it was kind of like so at the time there was there was a bit of a a culture in the locker room of, of discontent at the time. A lot of guys were a little frustrated and, you know, well, I guess he's their guy, and, you know, and, and uh, I was honestly <laughs> ecstatic to be there. And I think from, from day one, one of the things that set me apart in the locker room was I was legitimately grateful for every single day I was there. Um, being being 33 years old, I remember Edge, Edge was in the locker room and we're like the same age. And he's, you know, 15 years in the business at this point or something. And he's like, how old are you? I'm 33. He goes, you're already old. <laughs> like, how are you, you're just getting here now? I was like, well, I'm sorry, I don't have to tell you. You know, and again, someone like Ray Mysterio, like almost 20 years in the business at, in his, you know, at that time too. Uh, but, but the fact that I wasn't a kid also kind of helped out a bit too and and they also uh, saw your passion for the business which you you had a, a very strong passion for the business when you came in there yeah i was uh, you know what when i was at obw I, I was a wrestling machine man i could wrestle our broadways and i was calling matches i was i was you know that's what i had to keep telling myself you know I'm pre you're prepared for this you're prepared for this this is the goal don't be afraid of the goal this is the goal line you're over prepared you're prepared and then uh, they don't be afraid of this you know that you're prepared for this and uh, just trying to talk myself, because the whole notion of live TV is, is kind of what free, freaks you out a bit, right? When I walk through this curtain, this is uh, going to be seen live in front of, you know, millions and millions of people. The world. Live, live, <laughs> the world. So that, that's a bit overwhelming. And, uh, and then, yeah, you just have to talk yourself through it and i'm you know I'm, one thing that Santino, that you and i have talked about before was uh you know shooters don't mind doing silly stuff you know because i think shooters understand it, it's a work you know ken shamrock didn't mind getting beat he was ufc champion nobody could beat him anyway you know brock lesnar you know it doesn't have an ego as far as you know putting people over or whatever uh, because he knows he's ufc champion yeah. and kurt, you know, angle very, all, kurt angle with all the all the good that's stuff. right 
Kurt, Kurt did some of the hokiest stuff ever. You were, <laughs> you were doing stuff that was completely contrary to all of your background, but getting over like a million dollars, which shows you the, both your intelligence, but also the depth of your, the character that you're developing, not relying anything on your shooting pass, but doing a lot of comedy uh, and wrestling without having to rely on that crutch that brought you into the business to begin with. Yeah. Well, um, when I got to Rip Rogers class, he was straightforward about it and said, Hey, leave all that judo nonsense at the door. This is pro wrestling. And if the promoter says you're going to get knocked out with a golden feather, guess what? You're getting knocked out by a golden feather and uh, you know, be happy to have a job. And, and Rip really prepared me psychologically to be able to do that. Um, the character- Did he say any of that without cussing? No, God, no. <laughs> Every, when, I love Rip. Yeah, what a when, unique person he is. When my oh, da- yeah. Rip's I, the best. I have this image of my daughter would come to, down to Louisville, and I didn't have any babysitters, and I'm like, Rip, and she just sit in the bleachers during practice. She had she'd have earmuffs on in the bleachers. Every every other word, you know, is is. And he's like, I can't stop swearing, just so you know. And I'm like, it's okay. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <laughs> but so, but the, the the original Santino, you know, this young underdog baby face, was rejected by the by the audience um, somewhere. So I debuted in April, April sixteenth, I think. And by the summer, the audience was being force fed this guy like you know come on this guy can be Chelton benjamin come on this guy can be chris masters like they didn't they didn't like him and um umaga got won the title back in the summer in uh, houston and was like decimating me and they're like one more time like just you know thumbs down just kill this guy and um <clears throat> they said well we have to turn him heel you know let's see where that goes and if that doesn't work uh, repackage see you later whatever and the first promo i had that i i was a heel i was complaining about cheating in basketball or something tickled vince's funny bone you know and uh the next week i had another promo and the next week i was doing guest commentary and the next week I, and the, the mic was in my hands for uh, as a heel <clears throat> so i was a heel for a couple of years but a comedic heel that eventually the audience would turn and uh well, Even you didn't just that. tickle Vince's funny bone. He tickled my funny bone. I thought it was some of the funniest stuff we ever had. I loved the Santino character. I thought it was so good. All the broken English and, you know, reminds you almost of, uh, you know, Andy Kaufman in Taxi or something. I mean, it was just, it was genius stuff. It was it's really genius. fun to listen to. What was funny when, when I would meet people and I'd speak normally and I'd see their face like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? That's a point, Disappointment, yeah. <laughs> Anthony is Anthony's disappointing when you're expecting Santino. But Ron Simmons actually told me something once, and you know, because I didn't think it wasn't really bothering me. But he says, "Hey, man, don't worry. You know, you can you can lose every match for the next ten years, and then you win one match at the right time. And guess what? You're the world heavyweight champion." And I was like, "Damn, that's true, right? It's not, you know, it's it's, uh, it's the way it works." And 
I just yeah, I think I think it was uh they told me Ivan Putsky. I met Ivan later and I uh, knew his son Scott really well. But Ivan used to work the gimmick all the time and he'd go up to the like the nice hotels and he would give them twenty dollars and they would try to tell him, No, no, I'm sorry, it's hundred and twenty dollars or whatever. And he would just look at them. And as Ivan Putsky didn't speak English, so eventually they'd take his twenty dollars. <laughs> yeah. But Putsky worked the gimmick everywhere. Yeah, it was uh you know. When I'm, if I'm doing an interview with uh, someone from WWE, will be the you know the in-between person, the, the liaison, and say Anthony or Santino, you're on the line with you know Johnny from Q105, and I can be in character, I can flick the switch, but when the WWE magazine would call and they would, I'd answer my phone because they would call me directly, and I'd say hello, and then they go, uh, we're gonna, can we ask you some questions? And I said sure, it's for a piece. Okay, can you answer them as Santino? But I go like we already started talking, you know. <laughs> it's weird to flick the switch now because you already heard my voice, you know. But um, Kofi Kingston actually, because Kofi in the beginning had the, the Jamaican accent, remember? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so one time we're in the locker room and he's like, "Can I ask you a question? What do you do in the WWE magazine calls you? <laughs> do, you do you answer the questions in your accent?" And I'm like, "Right. It's it's awkward just to switch once they already." started the conversation as, as your, in your regular voice. I said, you know, I thought the greatest thing you did was the, uh, the I love glam, Glamorella, but the honky meter was the, was the greatest thing WWE had done since Honky Talk Man held the title forever. Yeah, you know, that, that, was, that was a Brian Gewertz thing. And um, it's funny because it actually didn't end up being around that long. I think it was a couple months. But I can't it, believe they stopped it. I love that. I'd run that for a freaking year. And that's so, when I do signings and stuff like that, people come up to me and they're like, we loved the honkometer. Why did it stop? And uh, for, for the two months that it was there, it made a big impact. A lot of people, they bring it up all the time. The honkometer, <laughs> even the name of it, the honkometer. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was fun to do. And that's when Santino was really starting to just develop, grow. And I created the entire backstory. Of, of Santino uh, from his birth. The whole story of how he got to that moment in Milan, I memorized, I, I did a Chris Jericho's podcast once, full character the whole time, and told the, the whole story from how I was living in Italy and I, I, I moved to, uh, to New Jersey and I went to Iron Mike Sharp's school and I sold my Vespa and then my, you know, I went back home to visit and this opportunity came, someone had tickets to Milan and the whole story, every detail. And um, yeah, someone heard the, the, the podcast and they're making a comic book about it, about the whole, the prequel to the moment, to, to the miracle in Milan, the, the prequel of my whole life. So it's, it's uh, but when you know a character, you, to me, you got to know, what that? What happened on that guy's third birthday? What happened to him in high school? And to get that real full understanding of who that person is. And the great part about it is when you have a character like that, you just need one line, son of a gun, and that's it. And, and, and that gets you out of everything. You know, you can end on that. You can finish your segment with that. It's just stuff that you have like that that people will remember forever. Yeah, Double A pointed out one time, and it made me feel actually really confident. He's like, he's your genius. He goes, you can't screw up. Because if you do screw up, they think that's right. Santino. And I was like, damn it, that's true. I can't screw up. And, and then I would um, start playing with the psychology of 
making it look like I screwed up, but it was on purpose. And, you know, things that people are accustomed to doing, um, you know, when someone's holding the ropes and you, you grab them, slingshot them in. And, you know, I, I would go do that to someone, but they just let go of the ropes and I do this and they'd be right there <laughs> and just punch me and all, all, all these different things. And, oh, then I, I discovered in my entrance, I'd only, only do it on live events. R William Regal gave me a piece of advice one time and he said, your best, best, best stuff, never, ever do it on TV. So you can do it all the time because no one's ever seen it. So I would go stand on the second rope and, you know, give the whole salute to the audience and I would slip and I'd slip and kind of land on my belly on the top rope. And I would do it in a way that it looked real and I would be humiliated. I'd be like, oh my God, I just slipped on my entrance. The entire audience is laughing. And um, I, would do it all, I would do it every day to the point where I started getting cheers and encouragement for me to do it again and do it correctly. And, and this is before the match even started. And then by that time, I'm like, man, we got this audience already. You know, we didn't even, Bell didn't even. You had it. a five minute match just crawling through the ring. In. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, the old, old saying, Terry fucking wrestle with a broom. Hell, you had a five minute match with the ring ropes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I found out that the more you fail stuff, it, so I would fail something and I'd leave that as a planted seed. I'd fail something else, leave that as a planted seed. And then later in the match, I would succeed, 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 and kind of tie them all together in this story at the end. And it was, it ended up. You know, yeah. Scotty Tuhati used to do something really similar. He would bounce up on the, on the bottom rope while he's the tag partner. He'd bounce up and down, he'd bounce real high. And then he would miss and he'd fall and hit the apron and roll the floor and hop right back up like he's embarrassed. Yeah. And the whole crowd would just, I've seen him do it, I bet, 50 times. I just, I love stuff like that because it's just entertaining. You know, it's something people don't expect. You know, people want to be entertained. That's that's what we do. You know, if you want to, if you don't want to, if you want to see a, a shoot fight, you go see a shoot fight. That's going to be entertaining, but that's not what we do. Yeah, don't ruin the match by wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you know, the entertainment side of things. And then I would, I remember Ricky Steamboat one time saying, you know, because I started getting it, you know, somewhere around 1,000, 2,000 matches. And I'm like, what? That's going to take forever. And then, you know, like six, seven years in, I, I feel like I really started kind of, you know, mastering some of the, some of the, the things that were do on, on live events. <clears throat> and then I did the math. I'm like, damn, it's been a couple thousand matches. So he was right on the money and I just need those reps. And, you know, I remember one time I walked in the building, looked down the hallway, and I was wrestling Jack Swagger. And he, he's looking at the paper and he goes, ah, I got Santino. That's a day off. And he walked away. <laughs> and I remember how nice that felt. Like that's my peers thought of me as, as a night off. And, and uh, you know, it means a lot when, 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 when your peers look at you that way. Yeah, that is cool. Do you have any heat like to this day with uh, Edge now? Because uh, you were like Glamorella. Uh, you and Beth Phoenix, and now they're now they're now the it couple. So is there a little Canadian heat uh, going back and forth with you and Edge? Well, he definitely beat me to the punch. That's for sure. Beth <laughs> is probably an awesome wife, but um, you know, no, no, we joke though because my wife is is uh, Polish and very strong, and Beth is Polish and very strong. So it's a couple Canadian guys with a couple strong Polish girls. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was was the best. That Glamorella stuff was the best. That's some of the best stuff. I enjoyed rewatching that today. This morning (laughs) when I got up, I rewatched it. And I, my wife looked at me, why are you laughing so hard? I said, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> she got the stuff she would do is crazy. So she would, um, where were we? In, in, in Bangor, Maine, at a live event. And to go to the locker room, you got to go up some stairs. And she's carrying me over her shoulder. And when we won, it was uh, SummerSlam one year when we won, like, both titles were on the line. And she, she won everything, but I got the title again. And she, so this is after a long match. She's carrying me on her shoulders like a child at, you know, Disneyland. And, uh, like, the feats of strength that she pulled off were incredible, man. She is such a workhorse. And just, like, you know, the sweetest person ever. And she's so talented in so many ways. She's a musician. You brought a sense of humor uh, out of her, like, you know, I've never seen before. I mean, you you just had a way of bringing it out of her. You could tell she just relaxed so much because it was a trust factor, I think, she, she had with you, too, that. She knew that you wouldn't put her in any bad, bad spots to make her. He was the perfect straight man. You know, you need that, that character to bounce off. And she, and she pitched, she pitched Glamorella and I'm really glad she did because it was, uh, it was so fun. Work, working with Beth was a, a pleasure every, every single day. Just as yeah, a human, saw, she's I awesome. I saw a story today or yesterday, I think it was, where she, she said she wrote up like a three page proposal to Vince, was scared okay. to death when she went in to propose it. And, Vince came to her that, that day. He's just like Vince always just shakes his head and digests it. Next day, come up to her. We're going to go with your your suggestion there. Yeah, it's, as soon as I heard it, I go, oh, man, this is going to be this. I just, I you know, you feel it, right? It's going to be good. And, and uh, Santino was perfect because he's insecure and he's a chauvinist and women should be in the home. And, and then he's with this woman. And, you know, Santino is the kind of guy that any woman that liked him, He'll take that one, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, so Beth liked him, and, and uh, he was just trying so hard to show that he was the alpha, and he, he just he wasn't, you know. And it was it was a fun, it was a it was fun. You know, it shows also, you know, guys who play you know diverse characters and a lot of different characters. They're really guys and girls, really smart people. You know, Beth is a really smart person. You could see that when she started doing commentary, she was excellent. I mean, she, everything she's done and now her new iteration with edge is just as good as, as anything she's done in the past. You know, it's, anytime you can change so many different characters like that, you know, just like you did with so many different people. I mean, you worked with stone cold, you worked with Piper, you know, Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, that, that yeah. shows a real depth of uh, intelligence. That's uh, quite remarkable. Yeah. It, it's sometimes it's, 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 it's instinctual. I mean, you know, to be in a new situation, and I mean, when you're in the ring with Stone Cold, you're you're in good hands. So it helps you, right? You're obviously that was the best when you were bashing his movie in order to put it over. You know, it's the greatest thing. It's like Sheik saying, "Don't chant USA, don't chant USA." Yeah. I'm I'm not a nugget, that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I coach that when I coach kids. I go, if you're a good guy and you can get someone to chant stuff that's great but if you're a bad guy you can get them to chant something you hate I mean, that that's money that's gold absolutely the, the loudest vicky guerrero booing was so loud as soon as your music hit and it, it was brilliant it was just they were so conditioned when they when you heard excuse me it was the loudest boo you could do and it was it was great and her timing was great. You know, when she would just that high-pitched, excuse me, and everybody just go nuts. And you know what's great about it is, if you ask the average fan, she really wants you to boo you, 
they'd tell you, I don't care. I'm going to blow her anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, then the audience gets, it becomes a, something that they're doing, you know, like singing at a soccer game. There's just booing, booing. Oh, yeah. But yeah, and uh, actually I'm doing, I'm a commentator now for a few or smaller companies trying to sharpen my craft. Just Are you working COVID, for a sports net now? COVID, COVID stripped down everything. You know, I, I was working uh, seven days a week for almost, it felt like indefinitely up to COVID, you know, putting on my own shows, going to shows, coaching, going to tournaments, running the gym, uh, doing commentary. And all of a sudden, and everything is based on gatherings, right? Shows. So um, tournaments were canceled. Gyms were closed. Um, live events were canceled. So my life got a real pause, but it was an incredible gift, to be honest. My wife and I, we moved up to the country and we changed, like, I, uh, this was my plan, like, in the future, but we just fast-forwarded, and we have some acres up here on, on Georgian Bay, and I got a, so my daughter's 26. My daughter's starting at the PC in two weeks. She got hired by, she got hey, a contract. I, was that. I read that today. I was really excited. That's awesome. She's a beast, man. She's, she's, she's going to be uh, an absolute top-tier player. She was identified from a young child. You know, she won her school speeches and she was a Miss Teen Ontario and she's a television personality and she's tall and she's strong. She, she's uh, in, in a couple of years, you know, I can't, I can't wait to go to WrestleMania just as a parent going to watch the kid. I, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to sign. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm just here to watch my kid. And I, I just cannot wait for that. But now I got a three-year-old and a six-month-old and Congratulations. this whole new thank you man this whole new chapter um they're growing up country we got chickens and all i mean it's <laughs> it's a whole so there was wwe and then there was battle arts for eight years we've been open now and that's a whole chapter that's buffering between my current chapter and wwe tell us a little bit about that battle arts academy and who have you trained there and, and what what all the the mixed training that you do have, I've, I've heard it described where you cover just about everything at, at your academy. Yeah, we, we've actually boiled it down a little bit now. Uh, just, you know, tr trial and error. In the beginning, we were doing uh, so amateur wrestling, uh, judo. Um, we started off with doing catch wrestling with Ishikawa. He came to Canada for five years. Um, but the market, you know, people in North America, jiu-jitsu is where the market's at in terms of submission grappling. And so people aren't Googling where's a, a catch wrestling facility. So we, we switched to a BJJ. So we were doing BJJ amateur wrestling and judo as our grapplings. And then we were doing Thai boxing and boxing as our striking. And then we had a whole strength and conditioning side where we did uh, hockey teams, uh, soccer teams and stuff like that. <clears throat> and then the gym, I designed the gym while I was on the road. I'd be sitting in uh, on my little, laptop on um, with with a I, I formatted an excel spreadsheet to make it graph paper and i was literally just moving blocks around to build the gym and the gym we have it's like six feet off of my original design and i never designed a gym before so i didn't but but the gym transforms the the mats roll up these curtains slide out and now it's an arena the don koloff arena and we can hold five six hundred people in there and we have you know lighting bleachers so it's a it's an incredible facility. And anytime any of the boys come, they're just blown away. It's like a mini performance center. Um, but since COVID, we kind of made some changes. So I removed judo actually, if, uh, because I'm, I'm 
I'm only coaching there now uh, part-time because I was, I was running the day to day and my wife and I ran the whole thing. And uh, I was, I don't want to say trapped because I, I love it, you know, but I was stuck there and I had a lot of opportunities that I had to just let pass by because I'm running my business. So now I finally brought in some partners because I had a hard time delegating. I wanted to do everything myself because I wanted it to be right. You know, I used to have an expression. I tighten the screws in this place. I make sure that everything's perfectly tight and I make sure everything is functional. And, and, and you're a Vince McMahon manager then. I was the Vince. <laughs> and it's funny because I understood a lot more about Vince when I became running battle arts. You know, every piece of creative had to go through me. I ran, I produced all the shows. Um, any marketing initiative that we did, I it, it was all, I was the only captain, right? And uh, now I've been able to finally relinquish some control. I had two partners and I got my life back, you know, and this is all kind of going and coinciding with, with COVID and moving up North. So it's a whole new, a whole new life going on that I've just, I can breathe again, you know? And now when I go down to uh, battle arts, it's so much more fun because it's, I don't have that, that, you know, I haven't been there all day. I can just go in, teach my class. So now we just do wrestling and jujitsu and we just do, um, we're doing boxing and Muay Thai. So we've, we've boiled it down a little bit because to be a legitimate program and when you have one, you know, we have like uh, a double mat surface, you know, like two big wrestling circles. <clears throat> you can't divide that mat space into three programs because you got kids classes, competitive competitor classes. And if you have judo, jujitsu, the, the schedule just becomes kind of fumbled. So now it's just jujitsu and wrestling. And since we survived COVID, We've absorbed some of the gyms that didn't survive COVID. So our wrestling class went from like 24 kids to like 80 kids. It's crazy. Our jiu-jitsu program, same thing. It's like from a good day, 16, 17 guys, 60 guys on the mats. So uh, it's COVID. What is your makeup of age of, say, the jiu-jitsu? Do you have have a lot of uh, adults that come in just to get into shape? Or or is it mainly guys who are really wanting to do something in that genre of jiu-jitsu? It's actually a, a, a nice blend of both. We got some small kids and then teenagers. Then we had guys, a lot of guys that are beginners, but they're professionals, 30s, 40s. They just want to get out and, and do learn something. They love watching UFC. They want to see what it feels like. And then we got guys that are, you know, they go to competitions and they want to be, you know, champions and stuff. So the, the, mat, the mat is kind of, just the, that side is the recreation guys. And these guys, it's guys, you know, they're, they're going at it pretty hard. Um, and our wrestling program, yeah, I mean, it's, we, uh, there's a famous club in Canada called the Mat Men, and they've kind of joined forces. And we have this mega, we're almost like the regional training center for amateur wrestling. And it's, it's awesome, man. I just love watching young kids chasing their dreams like I used to. And you just opened up a new gym also, right? Just up north on our, on our property, actually, something a little more COVID friendly, and they're just, just, uh, it's just me and my wife just training people, uh, personal training and weight loss and stuff. And you know, <laughs> if I'm in the living room and I see someone pull up the driveway, uh, I just go, oh, someone's here, and you know, I, I walk over to the gym and train them and kind of walk back. And it, it's really, uh, it's 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 uh recreational i I joke around saying i'm semi-retired because i go i go skiing every day and kayaking and i got my 47 years old i got my first atv my first you know snowmobile and all this fun stuff and it's really it's uh i'm trying to i've lived a 
I want to be recreational and just have fun every day because I was uh, WWE. You know, it's nonstop for that's for ten years, and then all of a sudden, even when you're off, it's nonstop. Twenty. Yeah, yeah. After WWE was even busier, <clears throat> and I got called to one of the reunion shows in Tampa, and it was like a vacation. WWE going on the road is now a vacation when you're working seven days a week, you know, and r- running a business. So, yeah, now it's all about. Ah, relaxing. Yeah, you sound happier than I've ever heard you sound, and 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 refresh. It's good to see you like this. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and, and now what's funny? Now I'm going to get back at it. Uh, I'm actually going down to Orlando in March. I'm going to knock on some doors and say, "Hey, who who who's looking for a, a commentator?" Because uh, I'm pretty, I'm good at it. You know, I have a. Knack. I sure hope they use you at NXT. Uh, you know, just for your your expertise and every realm of our business you know the the entertainment side i mean what, what a perfect here here's here's a world-class art of entertainment too and that's thank you time to tell you about something i'm super passionate about protecting your family yes this is a life insurance ad for goliathlife.com but to me this is really about peace of mind think about insurance for a second we all get medical and auto insurance yet we never even know if we're going to have a need for it Let me let you in on a little secret. You need life insurance. We're all going to die. Now, as you let that reality sink in, think about what would happen if your family stopped having your income tomorrow. If you don't have a plan for that, you need to visit goliathlife.com. And I mean, right now, and just personally, I've lost two friends in their forties this past year and a half. And I don't even want to think about what their families would be going through. Had they not had life insurance. If you don't have it, get it, protect your family. And I suggest you go to goliathlife.com because they've made the process of getting affordable life insurance super easy. Goliath Life streamlines the life insurance process by allowing you to get quotes for more than 20 carriers within minutes. And you'll pick your terms and payments to fit your budget. You pick your price, you start the online application immediately, and even schedule the medical exam to come to you. And I've done it. They sent someone to my office. I skipped the phone calls, the paperwork, and the crazy invasive conversations. Goliath Life makes buying life insurance simple. There's no hidden fees, no upsells, no hassle. Hell, not even a phone call. Goliath Life is life insurance in your hands on your time. Get multiple quick quotes right now from the comfort of your own home and begin your application in a few easy clicks right now at GoliathLife.com. This year, it's time to get off the couch and get back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can help. Guys, we know that confidence can take you far in life. And when you feel confident, you are at your best, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com. Consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. They always say first impressions are important, 
What about lasting impressions? So if you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we got a special order deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code JBLGB. That's JBLGB at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. TheBlueChew.com promo code JBLGB to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring this podcast. Yeah, I, I, I love coaching. I actually enjoy it a lot, a lot. The hard part of coaching is only the success rate. That's kind of a bit, a bit tough, you know, because you can have a kid come in. He may be as passionate as anybody else, you know, 145 pounds. And you're like, oh, man, you know, I don't have the heart, but I'm I'm up front. And I say, if you want to do this and you want to take part in our student sh- student shows, because they're awesome, 400 people in the audience and friends and family cheering, you'll have a great experience. If you want to work the indies and that's your, that's all you want to do, then that's feasible. But if you looking at me and telling me you want to make it to the big leagues, you know, there's a, there's a serious work ethic involved that you have to be honest with yourself and Sometimes it's, uh, you know, I had a few guys signed, but out of, you know, hundreds of students, the success rate is not, you know, exceptional. That's a tough thing to do, too. I recently had a a young man from one of our major wrestling universities. He's a NCAA champion at 133 pounds. Oh, yeah. But he's, he's a fanatic wrestling, pro wrestling fan. And when this when this new system that we have, this name, image, and likeness, uh, started at NXT, there he called me. and He said, "How do I get to the WWE?" And I said, "I, I you know, I don't want to burst your dream. I don't want to say it can never happen because you know." I said, "If you really want WWE, find you another skill besides in ring because there's just no market for a 135 pounder, you know. And oh. I don't care if you are a national champion or whatever, but." It's it's tough to tell these guys that to, you know they have the same passion that John had or you had or I had to get in this business, but you know what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I feel like I got in by the skin of my teeth at, at 5'10", 220, 220. Um, and I'm bigger than some of my students, you know. And I'm like, guys, I, I'm I'm the exception. I feel like you know I looked. I mean, there was like a couple guys like Daniel Bryan and Rey Mysterio smaller than me like that that was about it man hey t- t- yeah tj wilson whatever but that, that was it it was a big locker room man those big strong guys and i remember when i first got to obw i saw bobby lashley and i'm like <laughs> what and bobby I, looked just like he looks now didn't bigger he? <laughs> well bigger he was younger how is that see how is it even possible that i'm supposed to look like i can compete with that like <laughs> He's going to tackle me and just, I'll die, you know? And then the guy, Randy <laughs> Who Orton. Was in that, who all was in that group, Santino? Because you guys, that, that that OVW was loaded there. Well, just before I came out of there, that's when Randy and, and Cena and those guys came out of there. When I was there, um, we didn't, um, Cody was there, Neil Crime Time was there, Deuce and Domino, the Highlanders kind of came through there. Um, in terms of uh, CM Punk was there, um, that, you know, during my time of, uh, of OVW, 
Uh, Bobby just got called up, you know, Melina and Morrison and the Miz was there and they were going to get in called up. Yeah. Gosh, actually there was a point of few guys that kind of stuck around and had a career out of it. Um, it, it was fun, man. That whole Louisville, the whole, the, the Kentucky loop and a little bit of Southern Indiana. And man, I miss those days. They were fun because you were hungry and setting up rings and, and just, you were consumed and obsessed with it and watching tapes and, and, fun times back then. Santino, how did it come about you working with uh, Hot Rod was one of my favorite guys of all time. I was good friends with Hot Rod. I love talking to him, you know, about being a heel. And just, I just loved Hot Rod. Yeah. How did it come about you working with Hot Rod? Because that was some great stuff you guys did. Yeah, I, I think that was a, a Brian Go. So when I when I was comedy. But you owe everything basically to Brian Goerks and Dustin. Well, in the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning, I was kind of assigned to Brian in the beginning. And a lot of the Brian got Santino and the stuff he would write. Oh, they, they just brought up Brian's wheelhouse. I mean, Brian yeah. is Brian's a really smart guy. But and this, I would that, read it. That, that and funny stuff laughing. is right up his wheelhouse. Brian after, is uh, Santino. <laughs> that's right. Because <laughs> after after he you know he left and there was other writers, you know, I, I wasn't difficult to work with. But sometimes I'd be like, I'd read something and go. Who wrote this? And just, <laughs> don't, don't try and write for Santino. Don't try and write as Santino. Just tell me what you want me to say. You know, but but, but Brian, Brian, Brian could write stuff, and and I'd, I'd be laughing as I'm reading it because I'm hearing myself how I'm gonna say it. You know, uh, but that was him. Yeah, they called me, and I'm the rib is of course. So Roddy Piper has to slap me, and we were at a Hooters in L.A. And you know, he's slapping me like he's hard. And, and we had like eight takes or something. And I'm like, pam, oh my God. I think by the end, my face is already red by the take we took. <laughs> and he's looking at me like, sorry, kid. And bam, he's belting me every single time. And I'm like, this it's a good rib. I get it. It's a rib. <laughs> but he was, yeah, some of those conversations with, with Roddy, just aside when he's talking to you, God, man, awesome, man. He, because Roddy and kind of the Santino character were similar in a lot of ways because they were, they were, you know, off, off the shelf. They weren't normal. You know, they, they, Roddy could do stuff that was crazy and somehow it made sense and was really entertaining. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I thought it was interesting, we were talking because in the beginning of my career, I would watch back stuff, you know, uh, but near the end, I never watched back stuff anymore. I don't know why I, I was, uh, and he told me the same thing. He never would watch back his matches or anything that he did after he wanted to be live and in the moment and bring it to life as it was at that particular moment and stuff. Um, he, you know, he gave me a compliment once he called me old school, you know, like he said, he, you, you wrestle like somebody from my time. And I was like, Oh man, that so much weight to that comp, that compliment, you know, to be called old school by people that are old school, you know, Right before Roddy passed away, of course, you know, he had a heart attack. Nobody knew he was going to pass away anytime soon. He called me. I was in Bermuda. You know, I ran a, I ran a you know, at-risk pro program yeah. for kids. And he goes, kid, I'm so proud of you. I love what you do. He goes, I'm right beside you. I want to come see your kids. And I said, oh, Hot Rod. I said, really? You're, you're here in Bermuda? I said, that's awesome. Tell me where you are. I'll come get you. He goes, I'm right, right beside you, kid. And, he, and he, I said, what do you mean you're right beside me? I said, just tell me where you are. I've got a car. I'll come get you. Don't get a taxi. And he goes, well, no, no, kid. I'm just like right next to you. I said, Roddy, where are you? He said, I'm in Aruba. I said, like 1,500 miles. <laughs> and literally, he says, 
don't get hot. And he hung up on me. <laughs> Right oh next my to gosh! You. Right next to you. Yes. Right next to you. Yeah, I need somebody to come get him in Aruba. Send me a helicopter. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and the whole Jimmy Kimmel experience was uh, was cool too. You know, the Hollywood thing, and and uh, they're so welcoming. The whole family, you know, his mom's there. His uncle who passed away was great, and taking you. They just made me feel like part of the family. You know, they're great. Cousin Sal was awesome. Cousin Sal, that that, uh, that that character reminded me of Santino. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and he's a funny guy. I watch him every day on Fox Bets. Uh, you know, he does the betting show that he was with. Used to be with Clay Travis. I'm not sure Clay still in, but it's pretty. It's pretty entertaining. He's, he's a funny guy. Humor is, is is unique and it's it's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Well, Santino. I- I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on our show. Uh, tell us about your battle arts, your social media, whatever you want to promote, because we want to at least promote whatever you're doing. Yeah, right now I just uh, – I don't want to say I'm antisocial, but I'm just kind of enjoying the private life a little bit these days. I live in a small town in northern Ontario by Georgian Bay, and uh, I'm just really enjoying where, where I live. You know, my parents are about, about to go to a, a retirement home up here. My dad has Parkinson's, so – they're going to be close by. My sister's close by. And the whole COVID thing was a blessing. I play with my son every day, all day. He doesn't really know uh, that I, I, I wrestled kind of, you know, I sh- kind of, he's, he came to one um, independent show. Was it a destiny show? Anyway, you know, someone was poking on my chest and I pulled out the Cobra and hit him with the Cobra. So he, he, he witnessed that live. So he thinks the Cobra is like, Cobra can beat Godzilla, you know? And uh, well, beat Mr. Sacco. That's right. <laughs> hey, hey, same thing. I forgot the Cobra. Yeah, before you go, how, yeah, how, did cobra, how did the Cobra come about? Because that Cobra was so freaking entertaining. It, it's so we, when I was in Japan originally at the original battle, and don't say Brian Geewerts. Brian Geewerts. Brian Geewerts did it. Well, Dusty Rose. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was at a bar, just drinking at a bar, and some guy, uh, his name is Taro, and he just showed me this thing where he would just transform his arm into this little snake puppet thing, and I didn't even get it at the time. I looked at my buddy, I go, I don't get it, what is that? He goes, oh, it's just a funny thing he does, you know? I said, like, okay. And then um, the next time I saw him, he asked me, do you remember how to do it? And he'd do this thing, and then he'd hold it and make it like a little wooden puppet. And, you know, we laughed about it again, but, and that was it. And then, like, fast forward five years, and I'm at a house show in Atlanta. And I think I was wrestling uh, Chavo or Carlito. Um, you know, those guys all look alike anyway, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something in my comeback. So I'm going to do, like, you know, jab, 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 this arm transformation thing, hit you with it, turn away, and I'll do a schoolboy. And it's funny, I used to call it the schoolboy from hell, actually. <laughs> and uh, so I did it on a live event, and the, uh, I told Cena, I get, hey, watch this, I'm going to try something. And I did the Cobra, and um, the audience laughed, like the first time. I stood there and made the space and did the whole thing, hit him with it, rolled him up. And uh, I came back, and he goes, uh, I would keep that if I were you. That's, that was funny as hell. And... So I just did it on live events and it was always just, it was always Cobra into the schoolboy, schoolboy from hell. And, um, and then one day 
the eagle bumped off it to cover it. So that was it, that was the first time it kind of became like a finishing maneuver, you know. Uh, but it was only on live events. And then one day, um, I was at uh, we're at Raw, and uh, Ricky Steve, Ricky was the producer, and he goes, uh, I was wrestling Zack Ryder, and he goes, uh, you're going over with the Cobra, and I'm like, Cobra, <laughs> like. Uh, he goes, yeah, Vince wants to see the Cobra. I'm like, Vince knows about the Cobra. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, he's been reading the reports and he wants to see the Cobra. I was like, okay. <laughs> and uh, anyway, yeah, I did the Cobra. And in three weeks, it took three weeks of doing it on television before I would gesture for it. And I, I remember almost being blown away, like in shock. I would see like in the corner of my peripheral vision, the audience jumping out of their seats, like, like screaming. I'm like, for the Cobra? Like, that, like you guys are really, okay, you're settling for, it's not really much to it, you know? And uh, um, yeah, so I did it for about a year with, uh, without the sock. And then, uh, you know, we, we, we developed some merchandise for it. And I remember doing the math. I was totally off the math. I thought it was like 25%. And Derek, uh, for merch is saying we're gonna sell 400 a, a night. I'm, I'm counting the money. I go ask a thousand bucks a day, and I'm you know four thousand bucks a week. I'm gonna make all these cold for sales. And then when I found out the actual number, it was no, it wasn't it wasn't an extra four thousand bucks a week. But uh, yeah, the Cobra took on a life of its own, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, <laughs> so you're a judo national champion, and the move that gets over is the Cobra. The Cobra. And it's funny because it's one of those things when, when you're in a wrestling school and they say, pick a, pick a finisher that you can hit on anybody. And then I, <laughs> I can hit the Cobra on anybody. And, That's and right. I, can, I can do that till I'm about 85 years old, just a little, little peck in the neck. And uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, what's amazing. You know, when Royal Rumble just happened and uh, they always replay your Royal Rumble exit. Yes. You know, a lot of guys would not want to do that. And and they're not very smart because they wouldn't want to do that. You know, that got you over like a million dollars. And they will show that every Royal Rumble for as long as there are Royal Rumbles. Yeah, I think they I think they tried to break it like two or three times, but they, they couldn't do it. Um, I'm we we're in the meeting and uh, Dean Malenko was going over the Rumble and he goes, you know, you're coming in. He goes, it's it's going to be quick, kind of, you know, breaking the bad news to me. And I was like, no, that's OK. I said, can I ask you a question? I go, can we try and break the record? And he's like, well, I have to go clear that. And then he came back, went talk to Vince, and he goes, yeah, you got a thumbs up, green light. So uh, I just said, okay, I, I'm going to slide in, pop up. As soon as I pop up, you know, Glenn, can you be there? And he's like, yeah, I'll be, I'll, I'll be, I'll be there. And now I'm nervous because I can't, I can't, if I slip or I don't get up or I don't go over on the first clothesline, it's, we're not breaking the record. It has to be flawlessly executed. And, uh, and everyone's hyped up in, in the gorilla line of the Rumble guys. Everyone's like, come on, Glenn, you got to be there. You gotta, and, they're, and they're putting pressure on Glenn. And Glenn's like, 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 like you know, getting hot. Like, leave me alone. I don't, <laughs> like, I don't need the pressure. He has his own stuff to worry about, right? And sure enough, Glenn was right there. And uh, we executed it and went over perfect. And yeah, they I think they tried to break it a few times, but. It's, it, it was it was pretty close to being perfect, and uh, you know that's the whole, whole thing, right? You you make lemons, you make you make lemonade out of lemons. And yeah, and as a heel, it makes you; it doesn't hurt you. 
You know, it's all in the way you did it. You said, you, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. And it just, that every time they show something from the Royal Rumble, they show that. Yeah. Because because there's six there's six different uh, the most eliminations the most ring time the most winners and the shortest time so it's always included in those six different uh, you know parameters. Yeah, the same Tony Santino man, uh, you put a smile on our faces and you're going to be putting smiles on faces for a long long time. We really appreciate you you taking the time out of your your retirement. You seem so content. You seem so happy with yourself, and that makes us happy, man, to know that. That, that you're in a place now in your life where you're you're 100 happy. Good luck to your daughter coming down to NXT, and and I know your son's going to be the next uh, Santino uh, on on the horizon there. So thanks oh, so much for putting smiles on our faces today, man. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. You, you, Jerry and I are big fans of yours. We're big fans <laughs> of your characters, we, and uh, we like you personally. So. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's everything we hope for and more. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you so much.